Good morning. My name is Shelton Woods. I'm part of the community here. I'm very glad to worship with you. If you could turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, the reading is also in your bulletin. This is St. Paul writing to the church at Colossae. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake and in my flesh. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Last week... Brad showed us how that Paul made a indisputable case that Jesus has supremacy over everything. He created all things. He sustains all things. All things were made for him. He is the firstborn from the dead, the first to defeat death. He is the head of the church. So it seems very strange that after Paul talks about the supremacy of Christ, the very next thing he says is that Christ is lacking something. How can Christ lack anything? Look at verse 24. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. This seems confusing, given Christ's power and ownership over everything, power that is beyond our comprehension. As one minister put it, he didn't have to brand the cattle on a thousand hills, but he's the owner. He didn't have to take out a copyright on the songs that he gives the birds to sing, but he's the owner. So how can he lack anything? And how can Christ's afflictions be lacking? Wasn't the cross enough? 
Didn't he say, it is finished, it's all done, I've accomplished it? We're told in Hebrews that after he died and he ascended, he went up to heaven and he sat down, which meant that he had completed what he had set out to do. When John gets a peek of Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation after the ascension, Christ is sitting down and everybody is saying, Worthy is the Lamb. Nobody is saying anything like you're lacking something. So what's going on in Paul's mind when he says he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? You. What Paul has in mind is Christ's suffering continues and it is not complete because he is the head of the church. One of the first weeks Karen and I were going out with each other, I was working in Manhattan, California. She was down in Laguna Niguel. And uh, my boss sent me to the storage place to stack very heavy metal cubicles. They were about 150 pounds each. I was younger then. And... Of course, I was thinking of Karen because we had just started going out. And as I put one up, I turned to take another one, and it fell over, and it fell on my third toe, and it broke the toe in half. And at that point, I did not say, well, that's my toe, not my head, so everything's okay. That is not what I said. I will not tell you what I said. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, we're told in the book of Hebrews, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. Jesus is the head and he suffers when the body is in pain. Paul knew this firsthand. Before he was a Christian, he hated Christians. He didn't believe in this Jesus of Nazareth. And he was going everywhere he could to kill Christians. And his name was Saul. And he was on his way after helping murder one of the Christians. He was on his way to do more harm to the church. And he is stopped by a bright light. And out of heaven says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me. And he asked, who are you? And it says, he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. As you go after my sons and daughters, you're persecuting me. You're hurting me. These afflictions continue. I am the head, but I have a body. And as you attack that body, you are attacking me. Three important applications to this truth. First of all, you need to know that your pain is not your own. You're not alone. I know there are many in this room who are in deep pain because of past things, present things, uncertain futures. Your tears are not yours alone. Those moments when your heart is broken, when 
you wonder if you have the strength to go on. Christ shares those pains. When that same besetting sin conquers you again and your heart is broken, why can't I get over this? Jesus is there sharing your pain. You are part of his body. John Lennox, mathematician at Oxford University, was speaking, and a devout Christian, was speaking at Duke University. And the last question that was asked of him, he said, you know, that's the hardest question. That's the one, isn't it? And the question was, if you want me to believe in God, can you tell me why there's all this pain and suffering in the world? Are you guys aware of what's happened in Indonesia in the last 48 hours? The tsunami that has killed hundreds if not thousands of people. You say that there's a good God. Could you please explain why people are born missing limbs? Can you tell me why a 22-year-old young woman dies of cancer? And to Dr. Lennox's credit, he says, that's the question, isn't it? That's the hard one. And he says, the way that I deal with this is, I know that there is pain. I'm not going to deny it. But I also know that the God of this universe is not indifferent to that pain. And how do I know that? Because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Because he entered into this world and into our pain. Sometimes, like the psalmist, we shout or we whisper, Jesus, can't you do anything about this? And here's what you need to know. He not only shares in our sorrow, he's powerful and he's so strong that he can say, I do suffer with you, but I'm so powerful that all things work together for good. You may not see it now, but I'm with you. Second implication here is we need to be very careful how we treat each other, and especially Christ's church. I was so convicted as I looked at this, and I understand that if I inflict pain on one of Christ's followers, I'm inflicting pain on his body. I never thought that I could murder until my son was born. And when I held my son at Torrance Memorial Hospital, I knew right then if anybody comes and tries to take my son, harm my son, they're going to have to come through me. And I'm an evil man. How about the God of the universe. Do you think that he cares for his children? And every time that I afflict one of his children, I am touching his body. And the pain we often inflict on one another isn't physical, is it? It's that harsh word. It's thinking evil of them. It's dismissing them in our minds. It's thinking that we're better than them. You don't think that they can see that and feel that? 
I speak to you children in terms of hurting your parents. I speak of you husbands who hurt your wives. For wives, it should really change our marriage when we know if I speak harshly, if I hurt this person, I'm touching the body of Christ. The body Paul is referring to in verse 24 is very clear. It's not just individuals. He's speaking about the church, the institutional corporate church. So while Christ is with us individually, we together make up his body. And it is for his church that he died, for a community of people. Augustine was correct. No one has God as his father who does not have the church, the institutional organized church as his mother. There's no idea of this Lone Ranger Christian. That fits with American values of individualism. But I read that I'm, if, I, if I hurt Christ's church, if I leave this church and criticize it, if I look across the street and criticize a church that's preaching the gospel, I'm touching the body of Christ. This suffering... Uh, that is lacking, I'm adding to it. Jesus' greatest concern, brothers and sisters, is not me. It's not you. It's not our politics. It's his church. He did not die for me. He died for his church. And if I speak against it, I add to Christ's suffering. Third, this application is that Christ church is suffering and we have an opportunity actually to ministry to minister to it. Every time that we minister to those around the world in his church, the poor in Africa, those in China who lack theological training while the church explodes in that country, our brothers and sisters who are undergoing persecution. Every time that we help them, we are helping the body of Christ. There's this book that some of us have read called How to Outgrow an Ingrown Church. If we see Christ's church around the world, we won't just be worried about what kind of carpet we have here or where we're meeting. What we will care about is the body of Christ around the world. And then there's the second thing. It's noted in verse 26. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. What is that mystery? It's actually the last few words of verse 25. The word of God is the mystery. What is that word of God? In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. The word became flesh and lived among us and we saw him the one of the only begotten Son of God. The mystery is Jesus Christ. We need to go back, if we can, historically, to these Christians in this small town of Colossae. They didn't have 2,000 years of Christian art, of cathedrals, of Christmas days, and Easter's, of commentaries. They didn't even have the... One of the Gospels had not yet even been written by the time that Paul writes this. 
And so Paul writes this letter about a mystery about a man. And some perhaps eyewitnesses have said, yeah, we saw this man. Colossi, this backwater town. They wanted to know more about this God-man called Jesus. Did he stick it to the authorities? Especially to the Roman emperor. Was he this great warrior that mowed down the Roman soldiers and the tax collectors? Was he a professor of rhetoric? What books did he write? How far did he travel? No, he was actually poorer than you guys are. He never went to Rome. He was not a warrior. And we could... We can understand how some of these people started to say, wait a minute here. He's poorer than us. He didn't have a home. Even Jesus' cousin started to wonder, are, are you the one? I mean, Jesus, you're my cousin, and John the Baptist is in prison, and he sends a message to his cousin saying, are, are you the one? Because things don't look like they're supposed to look like. So you can imagine these Christians wondering, how can this man be the son of God? He went around doing good. He cared for those who were disenfranchised. He healed the sick and the blind. He confounded those who came to him with questions. He went up onto the mountain. His disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. When people were sent to him, they came back and they said, we can't shut up this man. Nobody's ever talked like this guy. He may not have gone, he may not have a PhD, but we we cannot corner him. He always corners us. And here's the mystery, Paul says. He came for you slaves at Colossae. He came for you mothers. He came for you Gentiles. Jesus didn't come for an ethnic group, for a geographical region. Here's the mystery. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will never perish, but will have eternal life. We see in verse 27 here, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles. That's it, isn't it? It's to you. Christ in you, verse 27, the hope of glory. Paul didn't have the gospel of John yet, but he had spent some time with the apostle John. And I wonder if John ever mentioned to Paul, hey, you know, Paul, one time I was sitting with Jesus, and and this is what Jesus said. He said, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching, and my Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home in them. The foundational character of God is his holiness and that he is a personal God. From eternity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Perfect unity, perfect diversity. And it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He invites us into that relationship so we can understand this perfect unity and diversity. It's for this reason that we'll never find our rest until we find it in Christ. We have something called the so-called new atheists. 
They're quite brilliant and very persuasive, particularly for me, Richard Dawkins. Uh, But you have Stephen Hawking, who has recently passed away. Anthony Flew. But there's some other atheists, A.N. Wilson, Alistair McGrath, C.S. Lewis, even Anthony Flew, who recently passed away, who moved away from atheism to a belief in God. I've studied these men. I've studied the new atheists. I've studied the atheists who came to belief. All of the atheists that I have studied who came to believe in God and some in Jesus Christ, I wondered, was it the teleological argument that drove you to believe in God? Was it the ontological argument? Was it the cosmological argument? What is it that drew you to God? And all of them say the exact same thing. No, it wasn't the teleological argument. It wasn't history. At the end of the day, I always knew that there was God there. I always knew this restlessness inside of me. You guys are familiar with Augustine. Oh, Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. Here's the real Latin translation to that. Oh, Lord, you have made us to journey toward you, and we will never be satisfied until we find our home in you. You in me, me in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. How can this seem so real? I mean, a football score seems more real to me at times than Jesus being in me. A chocolate milkshake seems more real to me than Christ in me. And those other things will remain more real to me until our disordered loves are changed until our hearts are captivated by the truth and the gospel of Jesus Christ, until we spend time in his word and in prayer. Notice verse 3 in chapter 2. I'm coming to a close here. I love this. In verse 3 it says, In whom, that's talking about Jesus, in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You're never going to get tired studying about Jesus. You're never going to fully understand this Jesus. We're so looking forward, never never heard it before or seen it live, but we're going to Handel's Messiah, November 30th. Uh, Some of our musicians are in the Boise Philharmonic. They're going to be playing Handel's Messiah. So I had to look up Handel's Messiah because we're going to go hear it at St. John's Cathedral on November 30th. You know almost the entire first part of Handel's Messiah is in Isaiah. (laughs) Is in Isaiah. In a chapter of Isaiah... And we've got the entire scripture that points us to Christ. We might scale Mount Everest. We will never scale Jesus. You might get a PhD in chemistry. You will never get a PhD in Jesus. 
Because in him are all the riches of wisdom and knowledge. And he's in you. Do you know that comfort? Is Christ in you? And then in verses 1 and 2, why, why do I want you guys to know this mystery and to know this riches of his wisdom and knowledge? I love this. He says there's some of you, Paul had never gone to Colossae, and so he says, you guys haven't seen me. There's also another church. It's in Laodicea. It's a sister city of Colossae. They've never seen me, but I'm going to write to them too. And I'm writing to you. This is the purpose that I have. Verse 2, being knit together in love. There it is. I want the body of Christ to be knit together in love. I titled this sermon, A Body and a Mystery. That can be taken two ways. It could be the body of Christ and the, this church is the body of Christ. And the mystery which this gospel is being preached to you today, Gentiles. But there was another body. That body was put on a cross. But there was another mystery. The God-man. And he rose from the dead. Christ in us, in this body, the hope of glory. Let us pray.